Today on Growth Culture, imagine joining a tech company as its first sales hire and growing it to over $100 million in annual revenue. How does that perspective mold the way to build efficiently at scale? I'm your host, Adam Connor, and that's the story and focus of our guest, Mark Casaglo. He's the VP of Sales at Outreach, and today we learn about how he presses his team to, in his own words, use a tire rather than chisel a wheel out of rock. His specialty is owning the process and ensuring effective execution. Hopefully you'll come away with a trick or two about how to get to your next hundred million. This is Mark Casaglo. Hey, Mark, how are you? Thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm doing well, Adam. Nice to meet you. I am curious to get your story because it's a bit of a full circle journey for me personally. I have uh, been in the in the in the career world a little while, and because of that, and because of my tech sales experience, I've been subject to pitches from outreach before. But now I get to hear it straight from the source, from the person who is not only building the team but building the sales. So first, I just got to say, with that groundwork, it's great to talk to you from that perspective—a perspective that you probably didn't even know. Well, listen, I I appreciate it. Hopefully we did a good job. (laughs) Oh, of course you did a good job. And, uh, you know, broadly speaking, you have done as well. Outreach has absolutely exploded. And you've seen that personally from the very beginning all the way in 2014. But the first question that I want to ask goes way back before that. And to talk about your process a little bit and what you've learned over the years, I want to start with a foundation, which is what is the most similar between your experiences of selling outreach today and your experiences of learning sales skills via watching videos on how to sell shoes at the mall? (laughs) Uh, Well, first of all, I actually did watch 14 videos in a small black and white on a small black and white TV in the back of a shoe store that honestly had the worst shoe store name of all time, the athlete's foot. Oh, yikes. Yeah. I don't, we'll never understand that one. But uh, I, this is what uh, I walked away with. I, I didn't know it as, as, a, as a young person, as a teenager. I was 16 years old doing this. Is, um, there is, there, there's two ways to sell. There's probably more than that, but I'll generalize. There's two ways to sell. One way is to uh, receive, is to um, uh, create demand. And the other one is merely to uh, supply demand. And what I mean by that is you can be at a shoe store and you can stand next to the shoes. And when somebody asks you for a size, you can fill that demand, right? And there, there's a lot of sellers selling software, selling insurance, selling cars, you name it, that are demand fillers. They, they sit around and they wait and they give the person what they think they need. Uh, I learned in those videos that I would prefer to be a demand creator. I could take somebody that brought me a shoe and said, I need this shoe and pause for a second and think to myself, is that really what they need? And then how to evaluate that situation to determine what do they really need and then create demand around what they really need and then sell them something that was awesome. And this is kind of strange, but in a little podunk mall in Greenville, Mississippi, I had multiple dozens of repeat customers that would only buy their shoes from me from a dude in a shoe in a shoe store in a mall, and like that's you know that that's not very common, and it, it really is because of what I learned in those videos that is to 
find what re people really need, create demand for that, and then help them to, to real buy it so they can realize the value. And, um, I think that that's, uh, you know, what, what I've always brought with me through my entire sales career, whether it's doing multi-million dollar deals, uh, with school districts or doing multi-million dollar deals, uh, for software. And that notion of focusing on the needs of people, you've said it's impacted your sales career, but I happen to know it's gone a lot further than that. My next question is around the way that you've built and curated teams over the years, because I know it's also been a longstanding priority of yours all the way back to the mid 2000s when you decided uh, to run for and be appointed to the Tyrone Borough Council. At the time, you said that for that community, you needed to focus more intently on their needs to this place that you had come to call home and love. Now that place, that home for you is outreach and that community is the team. So how does that bleed over from your public life into now your private sector growth? I learned a lot of lessons of being in local government, probably the most depressing of which is busy, smart people are too busy to participate in government. And there's a lot of local governments that would operate much better and their citizenry would be much happier if people actually sacrificially gave of themselves to serve their communities in that way. And so, you know, you know, beyond what your question is, is, is just me to implore smart, busy people to give to their communities in that way. It's ultra rewarding. And, uh, those institutions need you. Uh, right now, there's a lot of people there that are doing their best. And uh, in my experience, many of them just aren't capable of some of the things that uh, people that are doing things in the private sector. Um, listen, I think that a couple of my biggest takeaways from that is you can't always do what you want to do. Sometimes there's uh, a regulation. Sometimes there's a public opinion. Sometimes, you know, your job is to represent the people and what they want, not your own interests. And I think uh, what I took away from that was really like, how do I figure out what area that I need to fill the need and how do I prioritize how to fill that need in a way that aligns to the outcome that is best for a community people, a people or a customer base or a specific uh, account. And so, you know, I think that, you know, my time on borough council was extremely frustrating and extremely rewarding at the same time. And, um, you know, I think that our private sector lives are very much the same way. And uh, another big takeaway was just learning to balance those emotions. And you can't let, when you're being recorded and you're sitting in a public building and there's dozens of people watching you, when you let your emotions get in the way, it delegitimizes the logic and the thinking that you're doing. And I think in private sectors, we don't realize it's just as impactful because it's not in the same kind of a setting or it's our job. So versus, you know, you're, you're serving by the, the grace of the people. And so like, I think that that, that was another big takeaway is just trying my best to manage my emotions. I'm a very impulsive, like emotionally person. I have an immediate reaction and trying to govern that. I'm not great at it even still, but like I'm more aware of my need to do it uh, so that I can let the logical part of what I'm saying uh, be as effective as it needs to be. So those are a couple of takeaways from, from that time of my life. 
And certainly balancing logic with the right amount of emotion can make for fantastic relationship building and also team building. To speak to that logic for a second, I know that you're a big fan of having uh, efficient, scalable systems for doing things, whether that be a stack that you use to uh, grow your outbound pipeline, whether it be all the way down to the to the strict routine you take, even as exact as waking up exactly at 6.38 in the morning. And I'm curious as to how that bleeds over into the way that you teach your team to build efficient systems so that they don't let their emotions get the best of them. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I, I am a routine, process, precision personality. And the reason uh, is because I have to be because I have really bad memory. And so I still remember um, when I, like I became aware of what was the problem is uh, at a, a house I owned, there was the exit ramp from the, the interstate and you drive through my town and it was about a mile and a half to my house. And right in the middle of that basically was the grocery store. And I was getting off the exit ramp, <clears throat> uh, you know, probably been driving three or four hours that day when I had a huge territory that I had to, to cover as a rep. And my wife called me and she's like, Mark, can you pick up some milk? And I'm like, yeah, babe, no problem. And I immediately commenced to drive past the grocery store and go home. And I come in and, you know, my kids are, hi, dad. And I'm giving hugs. And she looks at me and she says, did you get the milk? And I had this immense feeling of failure of like, how could I, my wife's been here all day helping the kids, doing all this kind of stuff. And she asked me for one thing, which was to get milk and rem- keep that in the front of my mind for literally two minutes and act on that. And, and I kind of failed. And I really got upset with myself and you know, immediately turned around, went back, got the milk. And I started Googling, like, how do you remember stuff? How do you become more process oriented? How do you not forget as many things? And I came across this book by David Allen called Getting Things Done, which has its own subculture. I read the book and within three or four weeks, 70% of the stress of my life went away because I realized that I was, my brain was so busy holding ideas that I was, wasn't able to creatively have ideas. And so that has now uh, rolled into the fact that I believe that you have to have a trusted system that allows you to capture the inspirations, ideas, problems, anxieties of the day, and then process them into things that you can either decide to ignore, throw away, or engage in and create projects around. And so the way that I talk to my team about that is, listen, when you're at your best, you could be following a great process. It could be great skill. It could just be like being lucky. When you're at your worst, you need something to rely on and you can't always rely on your skill because it doesn't seem like it's there. You aren't lucky because you're at your worst, but you can always rely on doing the right thing and the best thing you control that. And I, you know, I, people at outreach know I say control what you can control all the time. And partially I'm a control freak. Like I want more things to control because when I control them, I get to have more of a say and have more power over them. And I think that that's how I want a rep to feel is like, if I own my process and the individual components of it, I'm doing with excellence, 
then it's not my fault. This is the mindset I want them to have. It's not my fault if I'm not successful. It's something else, and it's my manager's and my leader's job to identify that and help me get over it. And of course, you want that grit, that problem solving, and that getting things done mentality and all that kind of stuff. But like, if I can get a rep to just say, listen, my job is to run the process, and I, whether I'm doing well or poorly, I can rely on that. And it's my leader's job to help me when I'm doing poorly in doing the right things to get over the hump. I think you create these really deep, strong relationships that help people understand why you have a process-driven culture. I want to ask about one more detail on that control because uh, even though you're a control freak, obviously, as you've said, you need to be managing an overall process, not uh, you know dallying, uh, dilly-dallying on the details. And I know that when you were building outreach towards the beginning of your tenure, uh, you had given folks as VP of operations the, uh, the option of either going to SF, going to Seattle, staying in state college. You gave them that flexibility. And today, in a world of increasingly hybrid remote work and remote work environments, I'd be curious to know what are some of those details that you find that sales teams and leaders tend to over control that actually doesn't help? I think that... When I say control freak, I think what I mean is, is like, let's identify all the things that we can have control over and exert their, exert our control over them. Right. I think a leader's fundamental job, a sales leader's fundamental job is in two parts. One, it's efficacy, the ability to create change. Like, can you get people to change their mindset, change their behavior, change their energy, change their results as a sales leader, you gotta be able to do that. And the second thing is, is, you know, can, can you, um, uh, uh, can you take somebody and help them to understand that you're going to create space for them? And so like you back up so that they can zoom into the place that you backed up from and you keep backing up and they keep zooming in, which helps them feel like they're growing, contributing and, you know, using their genius every day. Like a sales leader should be able to create space and they should be able uh, to make sure that uh, they uh, have efficacy or the ability to create change, affect change. So I think that those are the, the two general things that sales leaders need to think about. Uh, I think that a lot of the other stuff just doesn't matter. And um, I, you know, I've, I've just read this book by Greg McCown called Essentialism. And, and it helped me, I think, really firm up a bunch of my thoughts around this is uh you know, there's, um, there's process, which is how to do something. And then there's execution, which is, uh, you know, process is what you do. Execution is how you do it. And I think that what a sales leader's job is, is to create process and then coach to execution. And I think when you start to get into uh, how coaching works is when you start to coach to minutia, People start to turn you out, tune you out. It's just overload. They can't create that level of change. And so I think that that's, I don't have any specific things. I think it's just a general mentality around uh, if you're going to get super into the details, you're probably going to get to an amount of change that uh, no human can do. Your job is to create what to do, the process, and then coach to how to do it, the execution. And that might involve a few you know, detailed things in one conversation. It might if, uh, involve a few high-level mindset things in another conversation. But to think that you're going to kind of keep your fingers on every little thing just doesn't work. 
Now, when we talk when it comes to execution, I know that Outreach is known for having amazing execution in terms of the way you operate that team. So it's good that you've mentioned that because I'd like to segue into it. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that rhythm looks like for for the reps that you manage and then maybe also for the managers who manage them? So the key for frontline sellers is you have to repeat the same message over and over again, and you only get two or three messages that you can do at a time. That's literally the key. The, the main reason that people don't get reps to move or they aren't successful or their projects don't get done is because they're changing projects too often. They're not talking about them enough and they aren't focused and have just too many projects. And so like, if you want to get like, you know, every quarter I pick three focuses and I honestly, 80, 90% of my time is in those three areas. And I try to say no to everything else. There's some stuff that creeps in and some stuff that is urgent that needs to be dealt with. But like, I try to make sure that as a organization though, we don't take on more than those three things. Uh, and I personally try to stay aligned to that as an individual as well. Right. And so I think that that's, that's the front line. The sales manager one, listen, man, we spent, we give reps six to 12 months to ramp. We give a manager six to 12 days to ramp. We give reps hours of coaching on discovery calls and film study and call reviews. We never talk to a sales manager about how to run a one-on-one or a pipeline review. And we definitely don't do film studies and reviews and give them a template for how to run the call. And I think like what I'm finding is, is that the reason that uh, sales leaders aren't effective and they aren't driving execution is because they've never been taught how to do their jobs. And they've been hired and said, well, now you're a manager, do your job. And the way they do it is the way their manager did it, mixed in with some of their own personal ideas, which are may or may not be effective. And I, th- I would argue many times aren't. And so I think if you want to get your manager level effective, you need to invest in manager enablement just as much as uh, rep enablement. And, you know, at Outreach, you know, we have a, as an example, uh, I just got off yesterday a call with three of our managers. They're super senior. They're unbelievable. They're good, great. They're crushing their number. But you know what? We had a film study on how you're doing your pipeline reviews. And we listened to all of them take reps through pipeline reviews in recorded calls to see if they were doing it uh, the way that it needs to be done and if they were being effective in providing the rep value or not. And I think that that's what gets lost a lot of times is we just look at a manager and say they can or can't do their job. And I think that that's unfair. I think we need to say, this is how you do your job and and make sure that we're investing in them and doing that job, doing that job well. To use a, a phrase that you've used before to make sure that they are using the tire rather than chiseling, chiseling a wheel out of a rock. Am I on the right track there? <laughs> that's right. I'll, I, um, early in my sales career, I was smart enough to go sit with um, all the best reps and talk to them about what made them great. But I was too dumb to realize I should just copy what they did. And I tried to make everything that they did great, better. And I just repeated a ton of mistakes that their way they were doing things had already solved for. And I remember I had a sales leader named Renee Uyoa and he was this huge six foot six D one offensive lineman guy, you know, super passionate. And he 
put his finger in my chest. He's like, Mark, just do it how I'm telling you to do it and quit thinking about it so much. And I surrendered and I was like, okay, man, uh, you could eat me if you want to. You're so huge. So I'll just do what you say. And sure enough, uh, I had my best year of sales ever. And then what I learned though, in that year of doing things his way is I started to understand why he was doing those things. And then I started to see the real cracks where I could create efficiency. And I went on to like change those systems and create a whole bunch of efficiency around it. But I did it from a place of place of knowledge and experience, not a place of, I know better. And like I just heard something and I can immediately think of a better way to do it. And so, yeah, like don't, don't chisel a tire out of stone when you can buy one right off the rack. I have to admit, I learned something similar in my first year of my career doing tech sales. I was not great at my job. I thought I had a method that was going to work because that's just what I felt would work. And I nearly got fired from that job. And I, at that moment, took my uh, manager or the really the leader of the sales teams, direct advice as to what exactly to do. And I just followed that. You know what? I had my best year of sales the exact year following. I went from the bottom to the top almost overnight, I mean, in a, in a one-year pe- period, and it was because of something similar. And taking that advice was one of the best things I could have ever done. As a matter of fact, yeah. it's teachings and advice, which is where I want to go with my, my two final questions. The first uh, has to do with uh, a review now of the book that launched two and a half years ago. Of course, you're a co-author on sales engagement, how the world's fastest growing companies are modernizing sales through humanization at scale. And I'd be curious to know from that book, which listeners you can read as well, what's your favorite teaching? And then also, what's the teaching that you think has matured the best over the two and a half years since the book's launch? Yeah, I think that um, one of the gists of the book is uh, to dispel the rumor that personalization has to happen at this obscene level that creates uh, inefficient production. And what I mean by that is, is I can spend all day targeting the right company, the right person, knowing that they're in a buying mind frame. I can do a ton of research and I can perfectly craft an outbound prospecting email that hits the mark 100% that they would say this, this email was written uh, by angels, right? Like I could write that, but you know what? If they're busy and having a bad day and behind in a couple meetings, they just delete it and it doesn't matter. And I think that there's a level of personalization that uh, has diminishing return. And I think that that's one of the, I think that's my favorite thing in the book. It's also, I think the thing that's aged the best is our job as sales leaders is to find the least amount of personalization and customization that results in the maximum outcome. And that takes a little of experimenting and a little bit of time to figure out. But once you really nail that in, your productivity, uh, both in terms of inputs and outputs, increases and you really start to scale. And so um, I, I think that that's a, we, you know, there's a bunch of people out there that just talk about personalization, don't make cold calls. And, you know, they, they seem to think that there's a silver bullet. Well, silver bullets only kill werewolves and most of us just need to kill regular monsters in our lives. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is a great phrase. I'm going to take that and keep it if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so 
Let me round out with this then, because you have taken this company from its origin to the monster. Let's say that it is today. You've taught reps how to stay on script. You've taught managers how to make sure that that execution stays top-notch and stays standardized. And you've learned yourself the way of sales all the way from your teenage years to now. Through it all, I'd love to know as we close, what would be some takeaway advice for some perhaps listeners who are hoping to emulate your path to become the next Mark Casaglo. Uh, this is, so I get asked this a lot from my own team externally and stuff. You know, I just want to make it pretty clear. A lot of my success is just luck. You know, I don't know if you've read McConaughey's book, Green Lights, but like McConaughey was a great actor, but he immediately got acting jobs and got great acting jobs right away. And he just says, listen, I got lucky. And I made sure that I cashed in on my luck. So sometimes it's just luck. You know, a guy that's living in a town of 10,000 people selling stuff to schools in central Pennsylvania should never be where I'm at today. So, you know, you make your own luck. Uh, You know, success is where luck meets hard work, blah, blah, blah. Like there's some serendipity in the universe and you know, you just got to embrace that and make sure your eyes are wide open so that when you see it, you run to it. Right. So it wasn't all like Mark muscling it up or Mark so smart or whatever like that. Some of it is just, you know, uh, God looked down on me and, and threw me a bone and, but I was a hungry dog and I jumped on it. Right. And so the, the second part is this, is I, I think that I have two qualities that serve me really well. One, I'm very curious. I'm very curious to understand how other people think, why they think that way. Why is it different than what I think? What am I thinking incorrectly? What I am, what am I thinking correctly? And I, I don't do discovery in sales to get information to sell. I do discovery in sales to satiate my own curiosity. And I think that like learning how to develop a sense of curiosity, I think is a, you know, has helped me out a ton. And I think it would help people in general uh, out a ton. And the second thing is, is I seek to understand how I do things. Like when I write an email and I think it's good, I'm like, okay, how could I do this again? What is the process that got me here? You know, when I, the first time that I had a breakout year in my sales career, I, I, thought it was for one thing, but when I looked back and reflected on it, I figured out it was for something else. And then I doubled down on that. And that thing, which I call, you know, the stink of desperation story, which I could share at some point, I'm sure it's out there, but like, that's what happened is I look back and I, I understood and I figured out what I did to get success. And then I doubled down on it. And, and I think as a sales leader, I hope one reason that my reps would say that I have street cred is because I don't just tell them to do something. I explain to them why it works, exactly how to do it, what not to do. I give them a story about how it changed my life, a story about how it changed another rep's life, uh, how it's helped somebody else in a deal. And like, like it's because I understand what I'm doing. It's like Steph Curry, if you ask him about his jump shot, he knows precisely exactly how to tune in and explain how to shoot a jump shot. And not that I'm on that level or anything, but like, I do believe that a lot of sales motions, I have my own thoughts, understanding and level of deep knowledge around why I do it this way and how to do it. 
and, and I think that those two things together uh, have helped me a lot. Well, for teaching us how you do it a little bit today for, for throwing us a bone, I really appreciate this time to learn about your journey, your teachings, and hopefully we all picked up something here and, and we can go carve our own path. But uh, for now, thank you so much for joining me, Mark. Thanks, man. I had fun. In June of 2021, Outreach closed a round of additional funding, bringing its total valuation to just under $4.5 billion, with Mark still leading that sales charge forward, which he began seven years ago. Thanks for tuning in today. To hear more conversations just like this one, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and search Growth Culture. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to let us know how you liked this one. To learn more about Dedicated.ai and our other events, visit us at our website by the same name or send us an email at jl at dedicated.ai. We'd love to hear from you about what you'd love to hear from us. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Connor, signing off.